Starting with verse 63, picking up with where we left off, Luke chapter 22. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Therefore, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, when this was said, Caiaphas, uh, the other Gospels uh, record this as well, Caiaphas actually had a uh, show of his just distress over this and rips and tears his own garments. What further need do we have? And so at this point, it's clear they're ready to condemn Jesus. But let's open up in prayer over this text. Lord, we pray, uh, Father, that you would now speak by your spirit through your word in a mighty and powerful way to each and every heart that needs it. We all need it, Lord. And we pray that you would minister what we need here this morning. You know, and we ask that you would make that perfect connection to each heart that only you can do. In your name we pray. Amen. If you've been following with us in this 22nd chapter, you have at the beginning of the 22nd chapter, and if if you haven't been, I'll just give a quick review. At the beginning of the 22nd chapter, uh, this is where the plot is first hatched to betray Jesus. And Judas goes and, uh, you know, he makes this deal that I will deliver Jesus to you alive, and then you can do with him whatever you wish. It moves then to the upper room, and in the upper room, that's where Jesus reveals that he himself, although it wouldn't make sense to them at the time, later looking back it would make sense, he reveals that he is the Passover lamb. That matzah cracker with all the little holes in it and the stripes, uh, reminding us what Isaiah the prophet said, by his stripes we are healed. And he reveals that night, he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper and communion just a little bit this morning. And that we actually take from that upper room uh, experience of Passover that night, Uh, Jesus revealed that he himself was the Passover lamb. Then, uh, after they have a little bit of an argument, uh, after that high spiritual moment, they actually have an argument about who's going to be the greatest of the pastors and leaders, which is uh, really not the argument you want to be having when Jesus has just revealed himself as the sacrificial lamb. They move out of that place, they move out of the upper room, and Jesus descends across the brook Kidron, down into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just at the base of the Mount of Olives. You can look straight back up to Jerusalem. It's on the kind of the northern edge of the city walls there at the base of the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus, uh, it tells us, is his custom. When he would visit Jerusalem, he liked to go to the garden to pray. While he was there at the garden, he's an intent. This is where the garden is where the suffering begins. It didn't begin at the cross. It began at the garden. And again, oftentimes, you know, uh, in in, in things in your own life, that oftentimes the suffering begins when you know you're about to go through something, even sometimes more than when you're actually in it. Does that make sense? 
So the suffering was heavy upon him because he knows what he's about to do. And even if you're a parent and you, and you are taking your child to the hospital to prepare them for surgery, that might be more intense for you than the actual surgery hours itself, the knowing, the getting the bag ready and going. And so he was sweating, as it were, literally great drops of blood because he was in such intense agony. Why? Because he was yielding his will to the will of the Father, and that was in the garden. Then out of that garden is where Judas... Uh, well, Judas comes into the garden, leads the uh, guards. He's betrayed with this kiss is where we left off last week. And uh, with this betrayal of a kiss, Jesus is then arrested. And he's taken in the middle of the night to the home of the high priest. Now, the high priest was Caiaphas. His father-in-law had also served as high priest. You actually see both of them mentioned in the gospel representation. Of course, they were both... Uh, Once you've been high priest, you'd still be called high priest. So his father-in-law was. But Caiaphas was the reigning high priest. And he's taken to the home of the high priest. And here at the home of the high priest in the middle of the night, it's not just the high priest there, but the entire Sanhedrin is gathered. The whole group of the Israeli or the Jewish leaders are all gathered. Now, you know that this is planned because the entire... 70-plus members of the Sanhedrin are not normally hanging out at someone's house in the wee hours of the morning. Now, they would all be in Jerusalem. Why? For Passover. So they're all there for Passover week, as we'll look at in just a minute. That's why Herod's there. Everybody is in Jerusalem. Uh, we know that from Josephus' writings, the city would swell in population. There's, there's great debate on how many people, uh, a million, two million. There's a, There's debate on the number, but we know that the city swells in number. So the Sanhedrin was gathered, but they wouldn't have been up in the middle of the night. They would have been getting proper rest for the Passover season. But they're all gathered because there is going to be a fixed decision taking place there in the middle of the night. And what I want to look at here this morning, if you're taking notes, is really this will of man in this situation. Because you've got the religious leaders will take a look at. We want to look at the political rulers, and lastly, the will of the people. And where do these three groups, where do they line up when it, as it relates to Jesus? I want you to turn your attention to one other verse at the end of chapter 23, uh, the end of, not the end of 23, but the end of our text this morning. Look at verse 25 of chapter 23. Just the last, we're going to get to there, in a little bit here, but I just want to read the last because it really expresses what's going on in the minds and hearts of everyone involved here as it relates to Jesus. Last few words of chapter 23, verse 25, but he delivered Jesus to their will. At the end of the day, you and I have a will, and God's going to let us exercise our will. We can either say, thy will be done, or God will look back to us and say, thy will be done. Each and every person makes their own decision. I've titled our time in God's word this morning, the wanton will of man. Wanton means destructive or uh, just kind of reckless. And really, when you look at the will of mankind, we do have a self-destructive will, don't we? It's the way we're born. We're born to automatically rebel 
against just anything. The things that God has said, this is good for you, salvation, of course, but beyond just that, if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's good that you don't kill people. It's good that you don't steal from other people. It's good that you don't have adultery and things like that in your life. These are good things, but people by nature, all of us in this room and everyone outside this room, by nature, our will gravitates to the opposite of what God is offering. And we want to start with the religious leaders. Um, I've mentioned before, uh, one of the best places that I believe to witness to anybody anywhere in the world, matter of fact, our team has been uh, getting their Spanish Bibles and learning how to read John chapter 3 in Spanish. Why? Because one of the Sanhedrin was a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was very religious. But he came to Jesus in the night, and Jesus told him, your religion will never save you. I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If that can't save me, what could? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And remind people when they ask you about this whole born again, remind them that you didn't coin the phrase. It wasn't coined in the 70s. It was Jesus gave us that term, and it had never been mentioned in Scripture until he gives us the term born again. So religion in and of itself is not, uh, it, it's not, it's, going, it's not going to be a help to society unless it comes from God. But I want us to look first here at the way Jesus responds. He's taken by these religious leaders. These are the religious leaders of his own brethren. He came unto his own, his own received him not. The Jewish leaders of the day, the temple priests, the chief priests, uh, the, the chief priests of all the priesthood, and they have their own temple guard, and they've arrested him, and you can see how they begin to treat him. The soldiers, uh, the guard, the temple guards begin to beat him, blaspheme him. I want you to understand or try to understand, try and fathom the restraint of Jesus. He's standing there. He's getting beaten with fist and open hand, spat upon according to the scriptures. Other gospels tell they were spitting on him, mocking him, blaspheme. But understand, just try and fathom just a little bit of his humility, of his love for people, of the commitment he had to the cross, of the commitment he had to the will of God. Try and let that sit in. He's standing there taking it. And understand, he doesn't have to, in a sense. He fully knows his audience of captors will not believe him. He says back, he said, if I tell you more, you still won't believe. What more could he say if you've looked at his three-year ministry? They've sent people to question him. He questioned him in the temple the previous days before, if you've been with us. They tried to catch him in traps of uh, you know, different riddles and words, and no matter what he says, they're not going to believe. He's standing there, and he's enduring incredible pain, incredible humiliation, mocking, vile slander. I mean, it's, it's a sin to even use God's name in vain. They're going well beyond that. And it'll only get worse. It's going to get worse all the way to the cross. And yet he endures it. Would you or I endure this? Would you and I think about it? What if we had it in our power to turn the tables instantly? I, I want to draw some things to your attention. Jesus himself said, he said, do you not know that I could call 10,000 
angels. Now, that might just slip by you and you just read, oh, go, you can call 10,000 angels. Let me, let me explain what that means. That would only be, when he says 10,000 angels, that is a tiny percentage of God's angelic army. He says, I'll just send a sliver of the angel. 10,000 is a tiny percentage of God's angelic army. But 10,000 would be astronomically more than needed. Astronomically, it would be like it would be like you trying to dig a hole in your garden and dropping an atom bomb to dig a hole. More than enough. Just one angel, one angel. And second, it's, it's mentioned Second Kings nineteen thirty five. Also, also Isaiah thirty seven thirty six. One angel killed one hundred eighty five thousand Assyrian warriors, which was the most fierce army of its day. One angel. One angel in 1 Chronicles 21, 14 and 15, when David made, had the sin of taking a census, which God said, Do never number, don't number the people. I'm the only one that knows the exact number of Israelites there are. David got a little prideful, wanted to know how many, how many we got here. One angel slew 70,000 in Jerusalem before God instructed the angel to stop. One angel. God had to stop the angel. He could have kept going and going and go on. Imagine if you had just a fraction of Jesus' power, his unlimited power, and you could rise up and defend yourself. Well, I'd be taking people out right and left. <laughs> All the bad news you saw on the news would be gone. He's gone. He, she's gone. Poof, poof, poof. I could have a lightsaber for, you know, for good. <laughs> You know, we watched The Force Awakens recently, so yeah. I think everything can be handled with a lightsaber now. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gave Samson in the Old Testament, he gave Samson just a little drop of power, and that was enough power to slay 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He was an average-sized man. He was not uh, the Incredible Hulk, green and massive. He, he's an average-sized guy. The Holy Spirit says, just enough Slay a thousand. You see, Jesus possessed omnipotent, unlimited power that we simply don't have. We didn't even have the power to get rid of a cold. I can testify this at 4.11 this morning. And all the other stuff that I throw in that, that supposedly works, only partially works. But he also... He had this unlimited power. But we also don't have his wisdom. We don't have his authority. We don't have his understanding. But he had something we also don't possess. He had a perfect and selfless love that is actually more powerful than his power. Think about that statement. His love is more powerful than his power. His meekness, his restraint, it's not equal to his power. It's greater than his power. Contrast Jesus' silence and meekness with the savage actions of these men. I mean, they're acting like animals. Remember, Jesus has never hurt or harmed anyone. Never hurt or harmed anybody. You ever watch Miracle on 34th Street around Christmas? The little girl says, hey, you big dope. He's never hurt. Santa's never hurt anyone. Or, you know, the little girl jumps up from the back seat. 
That would be Jesus, but it would be really true. He had never hurt anyone, never harmed anyone. No, he's only healed people, whether they're sick or lame. He's delivered people, thousands of people, not just a couple, thousands of people from demons. Thousands of people have been healed. He's rescued many broken lives. He's rescued marriages like the woman at the well. He's healed broken hearts. He's raised people from the dead. And some of these men, they actually were meeting Jesus for the very first time. They, some of these soldiers never met him before. Some of the Sanhedrin never met him before. Some had. Nicodemus, of course. He's done nothing to them, and yet they hate him with their every fiber. You look at the response. It's hatred. It's pure, raw hatred. And by the way, this is how some very kind and loving Christians in parts of the world are being treated right now. Exactly as Jesus said 2,000 years ago would happen. He said this would happen. He said, the way they treated me, they'll someday treat you. Religion, understand religion as an institution, is not necessarily an operation of peace, gentleness, and benevolence. Would we all agree with that? Religion as an institution is not necessarily ever going to be gentle, kind, benevolent, Thousands of years have now proven this. Religion itself can't bring peace and it can't bring genuine love. It can bring something that looks like love, but it can't bring genuine love. Not religion, not the vehicle of religion, not the institution. Religion without Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, without the anointing and blessing of God, without the centrality of the Word of God, and without the leading of the Holy Spirit, can and often and ultimately will become Cruel, inhumane, and as spiteful as any secular organization that's ever walked the earth. You ever read about the Spanish Inquisitions? You ever read about the the things that reformers went through? I mean, they weren't just tortured and burned at the stake. When you read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs, these were instituted by people under the name of religion. When you see people being beheaded or crucified or put in a cage and set on fire, this is religious institutions. The Greek word for religion is used four times in the New Testament. The word religion, you can find it four times. And it can refer to the following things. When you see religion, this Greek terminology, can, it can mean ceremonies, it can mean worship, and it can mean religious discipline. Now, those things in purity are not wrong. Did you hear them? Ceremonies, worship, and religious discipline. In purity from God, those things are not wrong. In fact, God delivers all of those in the Bible. Ceremonies, religious discipline, and worship. The Jewish leaders, they were deeply devoted to their religion. Their religion. Do you see the difference? They were not devoted to the religion of God the Father, although they said they were, they were really religious. Uh, they were really devoted to their religion. Because Jesus said, this people worships me with their lips, but their what? Heart is far from me. He said, they don't really worship me. This is a religion, the kind of religion that comes from God. That's the one that God will accept. The one that comes from him, he will accept. And this is the religion that Jesus presented to the world. It's the religion of a relationship with God through the person and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This is the religion and the relationship that the religious leaders were rejecting. 
But the religion that comes from Jesus, it's transformational. It's not informational. It's transformational. Those who've come into a relationship, relationship with Jesus Christ, they become like him. You and me, brother and sister, should be becoming like Jesus. More like people should see the certain markings of Christ in us. Hence, Christian means what? Christ follower. That's what it means. Christian means Christ follower, not church goer. Christ follower. Lots of people go to church. That doesn't make them saved. By the way, later this month, I'm doing the message, What is Salvation? Not next, it's not going to be on Mother's Day, but uh, it'll either be the 15th or 22nd, so keep that in mind. But as you follow him, you act as he acts. We begin to love like he loves. Not perfect. We and I will never perfect this in this lifetime, but we become more like that love. We become more like Christ, more like manner. This is the religion that James speaks of in James 1.27 when James says, pure and undefiled religion... Before God and the Father, there's the relationship. That's why the Father is mentioned in that verse, because pure religion involves a relationship. That's why James mentions the Father to visit orphans and widows. There's relationship again, people that are broken, that Jesus went to in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What does James tell us about the religion that Jesus brings through born-again saving faith? The religion of faith in Christ is not only our salvation, but it also gives us a love for others, a relationship with the Father, and a desire to cast off the sins that we used to be in bondage to and to not walk in the way of the world. Time and time again, these religious leaders, instead of having a love for others, they were bothered that Jesus had a love for others. People got healed on a Sabbath day. Oh, my. They had a true fit about Jesus healing anybody on the Sabbath. They'd be okay if an oxen got pulled out of a hole, but people getting healed, had no heart for people whatsoever. Inwardly, they lusted after the same things the world does, power, prestige, position, pleasure. They were all about themselves. They were all about reputation. Jesus said that inwardly they were full of dead men's bones. They were whitewashed tombs, he said. They led people into an exterior form of religion, which was about outward dress, ceremonial acts of washing and things like that that seemed spiritual, but those things never allowed their hearts to be softened, their own internal hearts to be softened, nor did they care about the people that they were supposed to be teaching and shepherding. They didn't care if their hearts were softened. Just run the religious system, keep the engine running exactly the way it is. Keep it humming. By the way... Having religious and spiritual leaders is a good thing. God's the one that ordained this. We understand that, right? He raised up Moses. Moses didn't say, hey, I want to be a, I want to be a leader of people. I want to. Moses was quite content leading sheep. God said, you're going to lead human sheep. He told Peter the same thing. He said, you're going to feed my sheep. Peter, the role of leaders is to serve God in such a way is to lead people into a relationship with God or, if they already have a relationship with God, a deeper relationship with God. To lead them by still waters. That's why Calvary Chapel, I love the heritage of Pastor Chuck, is leading people into verse-by-verse teaching the Bible, not our greatest thoughts of how we can change society. 
because God's already written all that stuff down. All we've got to do is re-examine it, re-look at it. I don't care how many times you study the Bible, study it more. These leaders, they didn't lead people into a deeper walk with God. They, lead, they led people to oppose God. You're going to see when they rile up the crowd against Jesus. We see the mocking here in the temple, the soldiers, and they reject Jesus. This is the first title he's rejected of. He's rejected as prophet. They mock him. They blindfold him and start to beat him with their fists. Hey, hey, prophet, who hit you? Now, he actually does know who hit him. He certainly does. I was reading Warren Wiersbe's stuff, and uh, I was reminded that um, even with the cop, when the rooster crows at the right time and everything else goes still in this rooster crows, it reminded Peter that Jesus was in control even as his hands were behind his back. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was in control of the rooster. He's like, crow now. Quietly. That ought to give you chills up to know your God is in control when the whole world doesn't understand. Well, your God died on the cross. He was, well, never, no, no, he was still telling a rooster when to crow with his hands tied behind his back. He'd mock him. He'd reject him as prophet. Rejection of God's anointed one as the Christ. The second title here, Are You the Christ? means Messiah. They reject him as God's anointed one. They reject him as the prophet. And as soon as it's day, the sun begins to rise and they formalize their decision. He's guilty of death because blasphemy, according to the book of Leviticus, was a capital offense. If you blaspheme God and they said he blasphemed God, therefore he should die. But they couldn't couldn't pronounce a capital offense at night. That had to be done in the morning. The the leaders had to uh, uh, issue that type of sentence in the day. And with the added daylight as the sun begins to come up, uh, sadly, there's no added spiritual light for these guys. The light of day doesn't light their hearts. They're still, their eyes are so darkened. Matthew Henry said, none is so blind as those that will not see. See, it's always our choice to see, isn't it? You know, we just, they blindfolded Jesus, but they were the ones blindfolded. Isn't that interesting? Jesus could still see they couldn't. And so by their own iron wills and their seared conscience, they take Jesus to the governmental powers that be to have him killed. Look at chapter 23 now. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, and he himself says uh, he is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, are you, a, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, is, It is as you say. So Pilate said the chief priest and the crowd... I find no fault in this man. They were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked that the man were a Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently, accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him. He's mocked again. Arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate. Here he's rejected as king. 
That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with one another. Jesus is brought to Pilate early in the morning uh, by about 6 a.m. Actually, turn real quick. I just want you to see this. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, 28 and 29. Take a right-hand turn. It's the next book over. Luke, then comes John. Chapter, tw- uh, chapter 18. Look at verses 28 and 29. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas. That's Caiaphas, the high priest's house, to the praetorium. And it was early in the morning. They themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled. Wow. Aren't they holy? That they might eat the Passover, which was all about Jesus. Irony, huh? Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So that uh, they take him early in the morning to the praetorium where Pilate had his governmental uh, seat or throne there in Jerusalem, and it's about 6 a.m. Because Jesus had been condemned by the Sanhedrin, uh, he's condemned in the city of Jerusalem, which is part of Judea. And Pilate's jurisdiction, he was the governor of all of Judea. So that's where they had to bring him, because that's where they were, that's where the offense had taken place, and that's the governor they bring him to, even though Jesus was Galilean. Now, Pilate, he hears their accusation. Pilate's been around the block a few times. Any senior leader has been around the block a few times. You, you ever see people that are really, really inexperienced try and pull one over people that have been around the block a few times? It's almost comical to watch. You're like, you actually think they're believing this, right? Parents, you've experienced this, I'm sure. But Pilate's been around the block a few times with many other leaders, with various factions, with people with competing interests. He's dealt with flattery, political maneuvering. The Roman uh, uh, aristocracy was full of all this. You name it, he's seen it. He's also had plenty of dealings and interactions with Caiaphas, the high priest, because the high priest had to be approved by Rome. So he knows Caiaphas well. He knows these guys. He knows what makes them tick. He knows what they're all about. He knows how pompous and arrogant these guys are. Rome doesn't doesn't ever squash them because Rome believed in keeping a nice balance of what the former society had and blending Rome in. So let other religions stay in place, but let them stay in check. So they had this relationship that would just be like, we scratch your back, you scratch ours, but if you get out of line, we'll crush you. But Pilate wasn't buying what they were selling. He does not see Jesus as a threat at all. He instinctively knows Jesus is no threat. No threat at all. Pilate's response, this is often the case with many people who live for wealth and pleasure. This was the Roman way. In many people's minds, they're not really against God. They're just not interested in following God. Right? In their minds, they think, I'm not that bad. I don't hate God. I just don't want to follow him. You see, Pilate, he didn't hate Jesus. All through, the, all through the four gospels, you see, Pilate does everything he can to convince them, you guys, why do you want to kill this guy? Pilate's crucified many people. He has no problem crucifying, but he just doesn't see Jesus as worthy of crucifixion or any threat. Pilate doesn't hate him. 
but he has no interest in following Jesus either. Jesus really meant nothing to Pilate. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter if someone hates Jesus, opposes Jesus, likes Jesus, couldn't care less about Jesus, or ignores Jesus. At some point, everyone will decide whether to commit and surrender to Jesus or to commit and surrender to something else. doesn't matter where you fit on the spectrum of liking him, loving him, hating him, ignoring him. some point, you'll have to commit, surrender or not. See, a decision looms for everyone. I believe Pilate was convicted by the very presence of Jesus. I mean, even when he walked straight in the room, as soon as Jesus walked in the room, something about Jesus' demeanor was like an arrow to Pilate's heart and saying, this guy is not like anyone I've ever had stand before me. All the, all the gospel writers indicate it. All of them say that Pilate was a bit mesmerized by Jesus. And he couldn't even figure out why. We know he was impressed by Jesus. Scripture says he marveled, Mark 15, 4. Marveled at him. He marveled at Jesus' silence and in the face of restraint because a Roman ruler that had power to fix a problem would fix a problem. And Jesus allowed himself to be condemned. And John, he asked Jesus, what is truth? Pilate was perplexed, like, come on, the world is so messed up, no one knows what right or wrong is. But he had a sense that Jesus actually knew what right or wrong was. Pilate was jaded by life, jaded by his own pagan pleasures, his power and his position. But you can tell by the way he interacts with Jesus, he still lacks peace. You can tell he still lacks peace, that he's, he's, he's kind of probing without kind of giving away where he's at. But Jesus knows where his heart is. Jesus knows, he's a, Jesus knows you're under conviction, Pilate. You and I both know it. In my own life, I've found that when you have contact with people that have never had or have had very little contact with a genuine follower of God, you ever met someone that you know that they've never really met a genuine follower of God or, or it's been just a short interaction and... You can tell that when they hear things that are real true, they're impacted almost instantaneously. It doesn't mean that they follow Christ, but you can tell that the wheels start turning. And Jesus is not just a follower of God. He is God. So magnify that many, many times over. Pilate, he's actually looking at the face of peace and love and truth. He's looking right at the face of the incarnate face of God. The religious leaders, well, they had gotten used to Jesus. Three and three plus years of his ministry, they had heard him plenty. Their hearts became harder with every time they heard him. They no longer were softened by his presence. They became more enraged by his presence. They had developed a callous skin to the refreshing humility of Jesus. But as Pilate becomes convicted, he still doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. Interesting, huh? He knows association with Jesus could cost him his high-ranking job. Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar at that time. He was as wicked and vile as any leader ever had been. You had to kind of toe the Roman line. So even though he wants to spare Jesus, he doesn't want to spare his spot and his position. But he doesn't want to kill Jesus either. And he tries to reason with the chief priest, but that doesn't work. These guys are bent on having Jesus killed. 
It begins to look for a way out. What about, maybe there's some other, he's Galilean? That comes up. He's been deceiving people in Galilee all the way down to Judea. Hold on, did you say Galilee? Yes, we said Galilee. Is he Galilean? Yes, he's Galilean. Whew. He's going to Herod, who I can't stand anyway. It's early in the morning. It's between 6 and 7 a.m. He sends him to Herod. Over to Herod he goes. Well, Herod's in town because he's there for the feast, there for the Passover feast. The Herods actually celebrated the Passover. They were part Jewish, part pagan. They had some Jewish blood in them. They also had Edomite. We believe they had Edomite blood in them as well. Uh, The Jews didn't really like the Herods, but the Herods actually did some good things for the Jews. So once again, it was a back-scratching relationship. Herod was actually the ruler of Galilee, where Jesus did 80% of his ministry. But he was sent to Pilate first. So Pilate says, hey, over to Herod you go. Herod Antipas is the Herod he's sent to. He was the son of Herod the Great. He was given his governorship by Caesar Augustus, who was the same Caesar or emperor when Jesus was born. Remember, the census was given uh, by Rome. Uh, Herod Antipas' father, Herod the Great, had made the magnificent additions to the temple. And he had uh, greatly increased the size and splendor of the temple, and it became one of the wonders of that ancient world. At that time, there was not probably a more magnificent building you would find anywhere in the world. And that won some favor with the Jewish leaders. But unlike Pilate, see, Herod, his interaction, this isn't his first interaction with a genuine, deeply devoted follower of God. Herod had had some close interaction with a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And whenever you hear John, you get to hear the same message Jesus teaches. Matter of fact, John would say, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus comes along, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. He had actually actually imprisoned John the Baptist. But even though he imprisoned him because he had a lot of pressure to imprison John the Baptist, Herod liked John the Baptist. Not only did he like him, he thought well of John so much that he actually used to bring John into his court. He liked John to do Bible study for him. He was fascinated by John's knowledge of the scriptures, and John would teach him and tell him, you need to repent, dude. But Herod would always send him back to his jail cell, thinking, mulling it over, but he couldn't give up his position of power. He liked to hear the scriptures explained, But the hard-hearted Herod had made his decision long before when finally, because John had told him, you can't marry your brother's wife, he did it anyway. And then his wife Herodias, her daughter, asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Herod could have said no to that request, but he went ahead and had John the Baptist beheaded. He chose the world over Jesus. He chose the world over God. He had had his opportunities to repent, and he had become harder. So by the time Jesus appears on the scene, even though he wants to see Jesus, he wants Jesus to be like a magic show. He's become hard now. He used to like to hear John teach, but now he's become hard. Now he just, hey, if you're not going to do the magic show, then we're going to beat you to a pulp and put a little crown of thorns on you and put a robe and have a lot of fun beating you up. That's what they did. 
See, when you hear the Bible a lot, be warned, everyone, and don't respond to it, you can become just hard to it. Back to Pilate, he went. Pilate now stuck, what do I do? He was now respond. Forget about this. Think, think about this. Herod was responsible for killing John the Baptist. Pilate will be responsible for killing Jesus. Before they were enemies, now they become good friends. Guilt is the common glue here. Isn't that amazing? These two guys didn't like each other. But one says, well, I killed John the Baptist. Well, I'm about to kill Jesus. Why don't we finally just get along? Because you and I are going to be spending a lot of time together in the future, if you know what I mean. Right? Now, God would still save them if they repented. Isn't that good to know? What if we get to heaven and they did? I don't know. It would be great. But I'm just saying that at this point, they both could not give up power, wealth, position. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get to heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of an eagle. I want to close with the people here. Look what happens. Herod sends him back. Pilate still is in a pickle. He doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he doesn't want to follow him either. And Pilate, verse 13, when he called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning the things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. Herod treated him like uh, you know, a, a punching bag, but didn't find any fault in him either. And sent him back. Indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him. That ought to, that ought to help you guys. When I, I'll whip and shred his back. Will that make you guys happy? That's what he's basically saying. No. For it was necessary for him to release one of the feasts. And they all cried out at once, Away with this man. Released us Barabbas. who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for a murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called them. But they shouted, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, he's pleading. He's talking about a verily, verily, verily. He comes a third time to the people. Why? What evil has he done? I find no reason in death for him. Pilate was a cold-hearted guy, and he, but he had a heart here. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voice that he be crucified. And the voice of these men, the chief priests, prevailed. There's the leaders right behind them, whispering in their ears. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released them the one they requested for whom rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. All three groups are together. Look at verse 13. Pilate, the priests, the rulers, the people. There's consensus. The religious leaders, the political leaders, and the people all say, we want the murderer. Pilate didn't really want the murder, but he couldn't say no to anyone because he, he knew it would cost him the career he had, the position he had. The religious leaders, they've made their decision. The Jewish rulers, like the Roman rulers, they look for whatever favors them politically. What about the people? What would the people decide? The people could come up with a different decision. You know, in America, we get to vote. What will people decide on things? What will they decide? They have the opportunity to be the voice of reason. The people could set an innocent man free. 
Pilate's given them the chance. He said, I'm going to let you guys pick over your re- leaders. Do you see what Pilate's saying? He's saying, your leaders have told me to condemn him, but I'm giving you guys the choice to say, we don't care what the leaders say, let this innocent man free. You realize the power Pilate gave them for a moment? That they actually were given the opportunity to override the chief priest? They never had the chance to override the chief priest. But they didn't. They went with the flow. They had the opportunity to set him free. They have a free will election, if you will. Pilate tries to reason with him, tries to contrast Jesus with the worst of criminals. Look, look, I'm putting him beside a murderer, a guy that would kill your family. Jesus will heal your family. Which one do you want? Do you want him breaking into your house in the middle of the night? Barabbas? Because he will. He's a career criminal. No, we want him. We want the blood of Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.3. Actually, you know that the Israelites cried out, his blood be on our hands? 2 Timothy 4.3. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves, teachers. Do you realize people have the exact leaders they want? They have the academic leaders they want. They have the political leaders they want. They have the pastors they actually want. They have the anything you think of, any leadership position. Ultimately, people have exactly what they want. They'll tell you they don't, but God will look in their heart and say, oh, no, you do. Because you have what you want. Nobody can ever blame Jesus for their own personal judgment. Jesus endured all this pain, all this humility, all this agony, He endured the death sentence to deliver them from their death sentence and my death sentence and your death sentence. Isn't that great? He endured a death sentence to set us free from our own. Sadly, Pilate, he'd already made his decision. His wife even came to him at this last critical hour and said, I had bad dreams. Do not touch and harm this innocent man. But he still wouldn't even listen to his wife, and he knows she's not lying because it would have cost him too much, he felt. Like the rich young ruler, he couldn't walk away from it all, even though he knew Jesus was innocent. The religious leaders, they chose themselves. The people, they chose Barabbas. Pilate, he chose to be friends with Caesar. All of them rejected him as prophet, king, and messiah. This is willful rejection They all had an opportunity, all choosing the short-term gains. Friend, guest, brother and sister, whoever you may be, don't accept the short-term gains of being accepted by this world because eternity is way too long. The short-term gains of being loved by Caesar or loved by the religious leaders or near neighbors thinking you're really cool or your coworkers thinking... You know, you're the greatest thing that's ever come through here. C.S. Lewis said, why did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. God gives free will because he's not going to force people to be his sons and daughters. You know, do you want to force your kids to love you? Oh, no matter what, you are going to love us or else. Let's not have stubborn wills, but a will to be accepted by God instead of accepted by mankind. A will of obedience to the grace and the terms of God's grace. I don't know about you, but 
let's use our free will to choose his free grace that came from his freely flowing blood. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that even though our wills are bent on rebellion, your blood pierces through even the rebellious, thick, callous skin of our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that you've, you've made a connection with our hearts. Anyone here who's been saved, we remember when we were foolish and resistant, and then we had that time where you almost, it felt as it were, the Spirit dropping us to our knees. We thank you, Lord, that you've penetrated our hearts. And Lord, I pray if you've penetrated one heart, just one heart here this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, maybe they're like Pilate. They're on the fence. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't make the decision Pilate makes, but Lord, they'd make the decision that Peter made to drop the nets and follow you. Maybe they're like Herod. They've heard the message so many times. But today, Lord, maybe you refreshened it. You made it new again. And Lord, I pray that if anyone here needs to enter into the newness of life, that they'd hear your voice. It's not my voice, your voice, Lord, that they would be hearing. Before we take this morning of the Lord's Supper together, I just want to extend an invitation. If there's anyone here, you say, hey, I, I can relate to Pilate. I used to just not care about who Jesus is. But he's more than just innocent. I know he's the only way I can get to heaven. I just want to invite you to come stand at this altar and we're going to pray with you. I'm not going to belabor it. But just ask you from heart to heart. A week ago, boy, I had my eyes filled up with tears just watching 25, 30 people come forward to get saved. Because it took me back to my own salvation. Do you realize, brother and sister, we are never more than the day we got saved? We we went from, you know, wretch to wretch saved by grace. That's, That's as much new value as we have ever had. No matter how much we've improved or grown as a believer, that's all good. God wants us to mature. But our only saving value is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I just want to invite, if there's anyone at all, just come forward, stand at this altar. We'll sing one stanza of something. And while we sing, if you want to come forward and stand here, you do so.